0: Well, good morning. Christ is risen. So this morning, in the churches that I've grown up in, the Pentecostal churches I've grown up in, they make this distinction between preaching and teaching, which has mostly to do with the volume of the speaker. So this may be a little more uh, teaching than preaching, but I want to start with a story that's a kind of parable. If you, if you get what the story says, you, might, you can just tune out for the rest of the sermon, because the sermon is an attempt to unpack the story. It's a story from Stanley Hauerwas, who recently reti- retired from Duke University. He was a, a theologian there. And he tells this story, it's a family story, about his cousin, Billy Dick Hauerwas. And as, as Hauerwas says, you know we're from Texas when I tell you I have a cousin named Billy Dick. Billy Dick is six years old in this story. It's Sunday morning at the Methodist Church in the small Texas town. It's Sunday school, and the Sunday school teacher is talking about the crucifixion and talking about, and you've been in these moments, talking about the gruesomeness of Jesus' suffering. Imagine the Mel Gibson passion narrated. And Billy Dick is, I mean, he's six years old, sitting with the adults, hearing about the cat of nine tails and the nails through the wrists and feet. And he's becoming more and more and more and more agitated and angry. Finally, he starts waving his hand. And the teacher, the adult teacher, notices this. and says, yes, Billy Dick, what is it? And he says, he leaps to his feet and yells out, if Roy Rogers had been there, he wouldn't let those He didn't say jerks, but I'll edit it for you. He actually said SOBs, but I don't want to offend you. (laughs) Those jerks, get away with it. If you have ears to hear, hear. We're going to read Psalm 138. If Roy Rogers had been there. Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted your name and your word above everything. On the day I called, you answered me. You increased my strength of soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he perceives from far away. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve me against the wrath of my enemies. You stretch out your hand, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands." Father, we ask you to send your spirit so that we can hear your word. In my speaking and in their hearing, let your word be heard. And everyone said, worship is not just about God. It's also about gods. The psalmist says, I will praise you with my whole heart. In the presence of the gods, I will exalt your name. And it's not just about God and gods, it's also about kings. He says, I will praise you until the kings of the earth, all the kings of the earth, sing your praise, because they have heard your words. I think this may be an aspect of the Christian vocation that we've lost sight of. That our gathering for worship is not only about our expression personally and corporately to God, It's also about the gods and the kings who are watching what we're doing. If this seems strange, think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is talking at length about his calling to the Gentiles, the mystery that has been given to him. And this is what he says, Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace, the grace of the gospel, was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ. And to make everyone see, and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, I wish I had time to talk about this at length. Think about what Paul is saying. My calling is to make everyone see the mystery that's been hidden in God's own life from the beginning. That God creates, he begins this story that we call the history of our cosmos, and yet keeps within himself hidden his mysterious plan and paul says my calling the christian calling is to let everyone see that what is it that's hidden in god's heart for creation that's what we speak of right paul says i want everyone to see that so that through the church the wisdom of god in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places I think about that as a summation of Paul's calling. I want everyone to see the mysterious plan of God hidden in God's heart for all of creation so that through the church, God's wisdom can be revealed to the principalities and powers, to the rulers and authorities, to the gods and the kings. We're meant to body forth God's wisdom to realities that are beyond our kin, to spiritual realities that that are at the edges and underneath and above our daily perception and experience Colossians 1 Paul talks about this at length Colossians 1 and Colossians 2 about what he means by rulers and authorities principalities and powers gods and kings Colossians 1 15 to 17 he's talking about Christ He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, in Christ, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. So all things in heaven, and then he parallels that with all things that are invisible. And everything on earth is created in Christ, therefore all things that are visible. And then he lists some things that are heavenly and earthly, invisible and visible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers. All things were created through him and for him. Now, if you've been to the churches I've been to, you've only heard about principalities and powers in relationship to demons and exorcisms and casting out spirits that hold people or cities in bondage. But that's actually very rarely the way Paul talks about principalities and powers. And you notice here, whatever he means by principalities and powers... It's something that was created through Christ and for Christ. And they're visible and invisible in some way. And according to Ephesians, as we've already read, our worship is for their sake somehow. So what could Paul mean? Clearly, it's, it's not just angels and demons. I want to suggest to you that What Paul means by principalities and powers are structures that give meaning and purpose to human existence. I'm going to tease this out a bit, but I want to start there. That principalities and powers don't just refer to (laughs) pitchfork-carrying, horned, red spirit beasts, right? Principalities and powers are in some ways visible, in some ways invisible. But they structure our lives. They give meaning to our lives. And principalities or powers are different in different areas, wherever you happen to be, whatever culture you have to belong to. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. See to it, he says, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, now mark this, according to human tradition, According to the elemental spirits of the universe. So here's more language about these principalities and powers about these gods in whose presence we worship and Not according to Christ and notice how closely he relates human tradition to elemental spirits principalities and powers For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily all of God is present in Christ And you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority This is what we mean when we say Christ is Lord. He's the head of every rule Every ruler and every authority in him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism you were raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead and when you were dead in trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses erasing the record that stood against us with all its legal demands he set this aside nailing it to the cross, and here's this language again, he disarmed, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Now again, this is this is a story we rarely tell, if ever. That what God was doing in Christ wasn't just about human beings and delivering them from sin and the possibility of hell. That he was doing something to and for these principalities, these gods in whose presence we live and worship. And that what Jesus is doing in the cross is not only delivering us from sin, but also delivering us from this oppression that comes from whatever these powers are that Paul is naming. Jesus exposes them. And then I want you to notice the move Paul makes. Therefore, verse 16, do not let anyone condemn you In matters of food and drink, or of observing festivals, new moons are Sabbaths. Now, what has he just said? In Christ, God has defeated, disarmed, overthrown the principalities and powers that dominate our lives. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in terms of what you eat or drink, what holy days you observe, and how you live on the Sabbath. Now, what does that tell you right away? What's that? Sort of. Yeah, I think that that's, that holds. But the, the, the point I want to bring out is the ways in which the principalities and powers use human tradition to dominate us. Now, let's go back to the original Billy Dick. Not the story I told at the beginning, but the story of Peter. You remember Peter's confession? <laughs> Isn't this impressive? He's, he's the original Billy Dick Hauerwas. It's Caesarea Philippi. Jesus says, who who do people say I am? And the disciples say, well, some think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, or Elijah, one of the prophets, Jeremiah maybe. And Jesus is like, well, who who do you guys think I am? And Peter's the only one who speaks up at this point and says, I think you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You remember the story. And Jesus says, the Spirit has given you this. The Father revealed this to you. This is in flesh and blood. And then he immediately began to tell all of them what was going to happen to him. I'm going to go up to the holy city. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. And Peter grabs his arm, pulls him aside and says, no, you're not. That's not what happens to Messiahs. And then Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of human beings and not the things of God. So what's happening in this moment is that God is speaking through Peter, right? He's giving him revelation that this is Jesus, this is Messiah, this is my son, that's Revelation, but it's interpreted through a human tradition. And the principalities and powers that have shaped Peter's life cause him to pervert the Revelation based upon that distorted understanding of human tradition. And what Paul is saying to the Colossians is, you've been set free from the world, so why are you letting people dominate you with human tradition? But notice the things he lists. He doesn't list cussing and going to R-rated movies and getting tattoos. He lists what you eat and drink and what holy days you observe. The things that seem to give your life purpose. That's what the principalities and powers, whatever those gods are. That's what they want to use. Notice what he goes on to say, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe why do you live as if you still belong to the world right we don't just die to sin we die to the powers that want to use our sin against us you've died to those powers so why do you still live as if you belong to them and then he says this is what I mean why do you submit to their regulations and then he gives some examples Do not handle, and this is a a sexual word, do not touch one another in these ways. Do not taste, do not touch. Now, I'm going to tell you something here that's probably going to seem unbelievable, but it's true. I grew up in a church, as many of you know, that was holiness. It was Pentecostal too, but it was really holiness, which means we were concerned mostly about how the women dressed. (laughs) The only rules we had for men is don't let your women do the things that women aren't supposed to do. But, but I want you to see this. I heard more than once in my life a sermon from this text in which the preacher used this text to tell us not to do things. When the whole point of the passage is whenever somebody starts to tell you, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, don't eat this food, don't drink this drink, observe these holy days, beware because principalities are using them to dominate you. And we preached it as if that was the point of the passage. Now, what's happening there is principalities and powers are invisible in two senses. They're invisible in the sense that we can't see them with our eyes, but they're also invisible in the sense that we don't know the ways that they're influencing us. We don't feel their influence. Their influence is so natural, we take it as given. When Peter took Jesus aside and said, this can't happen to you, he was just acting out of common sense. And it's common sense that always ultimately conflicts with the gospel. Because common sense is what you've gotten from your principalities and powers. Your common sense and my common sense is raised by the worlds in which we were trained how to be human. right? And every one of us occupies, let me, let me give you a quick image for this. I warned you, this is more teaching than preaching, but the preaching will come at the end. If you just hold on. So I want you to imagine this is a kind of graph of the worlds that you inhabit. And all of us inhabit multiple worlds, and each one of those circles has a different principality and power in control of it. So some of us think of this as, for me, part of of one of the worlds I inhabit is the world of academia, in particular, Christian theology. And in that world, there's there's certain language that's used. And... You know you're an insider when you use that language, right? And there are certain jokes. This is a dead giveaway that you belong to a particular group is the jokes that are told, right? And if you relocate, that same language makes marks you as an outsider. Those same jokes aren't funny anymore, right? Which I guess is one of the reasons my jokes fail so much here, <laughs> But we all belong to multiple worlds, and then we belong to these kind of larger worlds that encompass smaller worlds, right? So, you know, I grew up in rural Oklahoma. My dad was a policeman and then a mechanic. My mom worked at the newspaper. I went to this Pentecostal holiness church, and so I belonged to these worlds. But then there were a lot of my friends at school who didn't go to the same church. Their parents didn't work the same job, but they were white, rural Oklahoma kids, and so they belonged to a larger world. And then I had other friends who weren't white and didn't live In the country, but they also were part of America, whatever we mean by that, right? And so there are these kind of larger worlds that we share, even though we participate in smaller worlds. But what I want you to see is that Paul says each one of those worlds has its principality. And that principality has its wisdom. And it tells you this is good and this isn't good. This is success and this is failure. This is beauty and this is ugliness. Every principality has its wisdom. The problem is, every principality is at least in some ways at odd with the gospel. Now, we need a lot more time to tease this out in the detail that that I would like to have it. Maybe we can talk about it after service sometime. But they're not all equal. Don't mishear me. Some of these worlds, some of these principalities, some of the natures that are at play here are more unfaithful than others. If you have a, a cannibalistic world or a world in which they're offering children to idols consuming them in the fire that's less faithful than a world in which most of the families are stable and they care for their children and they take them to church and they feed them and clothe them right so not i don't want you to think that these are equal across the board yet here's the thing the more the closer the world we inhabit is to the kingdom the greater our temptation is the more our world Looks like what God means the world to look like the greater our temptation is to confuse that with the kingdom This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees the, the publicans and the prostitutes are going to enter the kingdom of heaven before you because they know their world is not the kingdom But you think your world is the kingdom and that's why you're going to defend it That's why you're going to kill the prophets who come Because the, you think your world as you know it is what God wants for everybody And this is what principalities and powers want. Principalities and powers want survival at all costs. And this is is the key point. Principalities and powers can only give you meaning over against somebody else. There has to be an enemy who isn't human in in the full sense that those of us who are on the inside are. And this is what Jesus explodes. He lets the lepers touch him. He lets the woman wash his feet. He touches the dead. He speaks to Gentiles. And the reason Jesus is crucified is that people who were on the inside of their world wouldn't allow him to change the way the principalities worked. I'm almost done. This is the point, by the way, of the Harawas story. What's happening to Billy Dick Harawas is the conflict between the world as he's been taught to see it The World of the Cowboy in rural Texas, where justice is a lone man riding in to kill the evildoers and then to ride away again. Roy Rogers as Paradigm, coming into conflict with Jesus, who just doesn't treat his enemies that way, who doesn't overcome evil with evil, but overcomes evil with good. And what Billy Dick is doing is just being honest about how that doesn't sound like good news to me. An innocent man is being destroyed. We need to do something about this. And this is what all of us experience when we come face to face with the gospel honestly. That there's something about the world that we inhabit. And it depends on who you are and how much money you have, what standing you have in society, your ethnicity, your education. All these different factors place you in different worlds. But the truth is, whenever the gospel comes to your world, there's going to be conflict and you're going to have to decide, am I going to trust the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world? And this brings me to the foolishness of worship. Because it's in worship that our witness to the principalities and powers begins by saying, Jesus is Lord and none of you. I could be proud to be in Oklahoma, proud to be an American, proud to be an academic, proud to be a minister, but that's not where my identity is rooted. My only identity is I'm crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is why Paul can say, I am all things to all people. When I'm with the Jews, I live like a Jew. When I'm with Gentiles, I live like a Gentile. But I'm not free from the law. I am under the law of Christ so that I might win all. Principalities and powers want you to have integrity. They want you to be true to the identity they give you. Jews, be Jews with Jews, leave the Gentiles alone. Gentiles, be Gentiles with Gentiles, leave the Jews alone. And you can make all the connections to your own life. Jesus says all of these categorizations don't give you meaning or identity. Your identity and meaning are in me, and I'm Lord of Jew and Gentile alike. And what Paul is recognizing is that I can be with the Jews as a Jew because Jesus is my identity and he is Lord of the Jews. And I can be Gentiles, Gentile with Gentiles because Jesus is the Lord of Gentiles and that's where my identity is. It's not about integrity. It's not about faithfulness to your identity as given to you by the world. It's about character. It's about having the heart of God, the life of God shaping you so that you live with God's wisdom wherever you are, whoever you're interacting with. And it's worship that teaches us that. But we cannot understand worship rightly until we recognize that whoever we are, wherever we are, for now we live as exiles. I was thinking about this just just the last few days. Even when you have a position of authority within the world, to be faithfully Christian is to inhabit that position as an exile. Think about Daniel in the Old Testament. He rises to the highest place of authority under the king. And yet he does so Always walking this razor's edge of failure because he's gonna be faithful to his God, even in that position. And he knows because of my faithfulness to God, I'm always gonna be an outsider no matter how much influence I have in this world. So Christians can and should participate in the world. We should be in the police force, we should be in the military, we should be in the fire department, we should be in civic justice, we should be involved, but we always have to be involved as exiles. Who know no matter how much influence we have, we are submitted to the Lord of all. And at any point, he might call us to do something that these principalities and powers will not accept. So we're all living toward martyrdom. At any moment, it could become martyrdom. And the only way we do that is by loving our neighbors as best we can in faithfulness to Jesus Christ in whatever world we're in. But you have to recognize that the principalities and powers want you to confuse the world as you know it with the kingdom as it's supposed to be. And worship reminds us that who we are is not defined by any of this out here. It's defined by the one who meets us at this table. So i leave you with this. Worship does not come to us naturally. And one of the great problems of Protestant spirituality over the last 50 years is that we have tried to build our churches to appeal to people's natures we tried to be relevant. And this is why Hauerwa says, Protestant churches in America are dying of their own success. Because we've drawn people to a gospel that's been shaped to their natures as they already are. But when we preach the gospel rightly, when we worship in spirit and truth, there is a kind of strangeness about worship that seems like foolishness to the world. And if you're honest, it'll seem like foolishness to you too. There's a way of worshiping that makes a whole lot of sense, right? It feels good. It does something for us. But when we start to move into worship that's true and spirit-led, it doesn't make the same kind of sense anymore because we're learning the language of another world. We're we're becoming aliens to the world that we've known. And we have to learn how to step inside that. And this this is why liturgy is so important. Now, listen... I believe in praying from the heart. I believe in praying in the spirit. As Paul says in Corinthians, I pray in tongues more than you all. That was a joke. See, my jokes don't work here. I'm an outsider. But I think praying prayers that the saints have prayed is one of the ways in which we start to learn the wisdom of the other world. Learn the wisdom of the kingdom. Like in this song, I will praise you with my whole heart. Now, sometimes we think that's, it's only worship when you really mean it. But no. Worship is about learning to mean what is against your nature to mean. And so I pray the Psalms not because I mean them all the time, but because I want someday to mean them. And so I step into that space and say, all right, I'm going to pray David's prayer until I can mean it like David meant it. I will praise you with my whole heart. And that's more a hope than it is a confession of truth in the moment. I want to praise you with my whole heart. And we do that over and over and over. When we come to this table today and we say, this is Christ's body and this is Christ's blood and he's making us one body, it's because we're trying to inhabit a reality we haven't yet caught up to. And i leave you with these two stories. Stand with me if you will. One of the practices that's been connected in the church's worship for, for a very long time is the giving of the offering and the receiving of communion. And I think in our culture, there's, there's a particular wisdom to that. And in one of our, the church I'd planted in Oklahoma City years ago, one of our meetings, one of our pastors, small group pastors, put it like this, and, I, and it's stayed with me ever since. We had set it up so that the offering was here, and people would come, give their offering, pray, and then come and receive communion. And he said, That he felt like what the Lord had shown him. Is that he was learning week to week. To come and lay down what the world told him he needed. To pick up. What the kingdom said he needed. That's what Christian worship is about. It's about coming to a place. And doing something that by all the standards of the world. Seems like foolishness. But it's the wisdom of God. Training us to see. The mystery that's hidden in God. This is. A few months ago now, my grandfather passed away. And we, he passed away, and we came, I, I was able to be there shortly after he passed, just a few hours after he passed, to be with my grandmother and my mom and aunt. And not long after that, when we got back home from, from the hospital, I, I had this urge to go to the barn where my grandfather used to pray, because I remember as a kid, when my grandfather would come home from school, the first thing he would do is he would go out to the barn, get the hay out, feed the cows, and then he would pray before dinner. And as a kid, there was a barn there then that's now been blown away by a tornado. But as a kid, I would go and stand at the door of the barn because I was afraid to go in. The barn is a, is a, was a pretty frightening place. And my grandfather, he groaned when he prayed. He often didn't use words. He just groaned. And I remember kind of being repelled and attracted by that. And standing kind of with my back in the sunlight, looking into the darkness of the barn, listening to my grandfather wail. And right after he died, the first place I wanted to go was to that, the space where the barn once was. And there was something about stepping into that space in which I felt like the Lord just breathed on me that same kind of intercession. Now, I want you to think about that just for how strange that is. That's, that's foolishness. But something about choosing to step into that very space made it so that I could stand in it and see it, not just look at it. The, the, the primary architect for Sagrada Familia, not architect, but sculptor for Sagrada Familia in Barcelona was a Buddhist who was hired to do the sculpting. And he says he's trying to understand, Gaudi as the architect, he's trying to understand his vision for this cathedral. And he said, for years I tried and it, have to, and it just failed. And finally I realized my problem is that I was looking at his work instead of standing where he stood and seeing what he saw. And he said, and when I became a Christian and I stood in the places of prayer and prayed the prayers that architect had been praying, I was able to sculpt the vision he saw. Worship is about standing where Christ and the saints have stood and are standing until we mean it too. And that's going to feel foolish to you, and it's going to look foolish to everybody else, but it's the way that the wisdom of God inhabits our bodies and our hearts and our minds and our spirits until we radiate the goodness of God. Let me pray for you, and then we'll come. Thanks for your patience this morning. God, we want to worship in spirit and truth. We want to be wise with your wisdom and fools in the world's eyes. Give us the courage to inhabit the space you've created so that we can see what you see and reflect your glory to the world. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.